you are about to hear is true. Attention, all true. the 1980s, I was very fortunate to have grown up where I did. Across the street from me, I had a retired IBM engineer, and in my town, they had just opened up a great new computer store. This was all brand new to me. I had seen computers on television, in movies, but had never actually been able to get my hands on one on a regular basis. My neighbor would tell me all sorts of stories about how cool it was working on early computers, and he would speculate on the future, and told me I should definitely think about working with computers how right he was when it finally opened. The store in town gave me quick access to computers whenever I wanted. They had early machines there, early IBM PCs, Apple Macintosh, anything you can get in the early 80s, they sold there. If it wasn't for the young guys working there who let me just mess around on the machines and show me little tricks, I never would have gotten anywhere. But my future career on computers wouldn't have been much without the internet. So I'll tell you a little bit about what I think was my first experience with what would become the internet. I had a friend, Rob, who was really into computers. He could read hexadecimal, do all these amazing things at a very young age. And we would occasionally get together and chat about machines and computers. He had a Commodore 64 and would spend hours typing in programs. He would tell me all about how easy basic was to learn and talk to me about how in the future all these technologies would converge and we would be doing everything in remotely from different houses over the phone. I was like, over the phone? Like in the movies? Like in war games? And he's like, yeah, th this is completely plausible. And I thought, well, I thought that was always just science fiction or something that the military did or maybe even, an, you know, a big company like an airline or AT&T. He took me over to an older high school fellow's house, guy I'd never met before and have never seen again since. I've actually wanted to track down his name for this, and I've tried to look through an old yearbook and tried to look through some other stuff and tried to reach out to friends, but so far I have not been able to find the name, and if I do, well, I'll tell you his first name here, because he had an amazing computer setup like I'd never seen before. He had the first acoustic modem that I'd ever seen in person. He had three televisions all set up with computers on them. He actually had a voice synthesizer that you could plug in and, and have your computer speak to you just like in war games. Now, I'm not sure where he got these things. I think we had a bunch of big companies in the town I grew up in, and as I found out later from Rob, he and that fella would go dumpster diving looking for old equipment that they could salvage and fix, which would explain the collection of incomprehensible computer parts strewn about this guy's lair. The room itself was impressive enough, but then he showed me that you could actually talk to other computers over the phone. And he demonstrated that. Now, I didn't see the potential of it. It seemed to take forever, and I couldn't really tell what he was doing. He would dial numbers. He would get another computer on the other line, then hook the phone up, and then start talking to this other machine. And I wish I could say that I glimpsed the future there, that I understood the vast potential of the Internet. But to tell you the truth, I was just mesmerized by the vast amount of video game systems he had. He had a ColecoVision, a Atari 2600. He had some old systems that I'd never seen before. Those are what I wanted to get my hands on. It is very difficult to glimpse the future when the present is just so awesome. The only other glimpse of that culture I had outside of that room had been watching war games. So when I dreamed about having my own hacker lair, I of course dreamed about the setup in war games. What impressed me most about 
visiting this guy's house and the movie War Games wasn't that the characters were cool, but instead it was because they didn't seem to care what was cool. They had their own little thing that they were really good at and they concentrated on it. And to me, that in its own way is very cool. War Games is about a character who is so skilled at something that he is actually cool. On today's show, we're going to talk about this movie, War Games, its inception, how the story came to be, how it was turned into a film. We'll talk about the plot, the stars, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. So without further ado, let's start the show. Greetings, Professor Falcon. The idea for the movie War Games began in 1979 when writers Walter Parks and Lawrence Lasker developed an idea for a script called The Genius. The story for The Genius was about a dying scientist who cannot communicate his genius to the outside world until he finds a kid who is too smart for his own good. Lasker said that he was inspired to write this story by a television special that was presented by Peter Ustinov in which several geniuses, including Stephen Hawking, were featured. He saw the future of Stephen Hawking as interesting. Here's a man who could bring a lot to the scientific world, but he had a degenerative disease that could silence his voice. In his own words, he said, I found the predicament Hawking was in fascinating, that he might one day figure out the unified field theory and not be able to tell anybody because of his progressive ALS. So there was this idea that he'd need a successor. And who would that be? Maybe this kid, a juvenile delinquent whose problem was that nobody realized he was too smart for his environment? In this early script, there was no mention of computers or hacking. It was a straight-up genius meets troubled child without the drama of nuclear war thrown in for fun. The injection of the hacking subculture and computers came when Parks and Lasker were doing research for the script and met Peter Schwartz from the Stanford Research Institute. Schwartz was telling him about all these kids out in the world who were breaking into phone networks and computers for fun. This, of course, would be the subculture that we would come to know as hackers. Schwartz made a point that if they were going to betray youth and science with computers in this, that it would be really interesting to tie it into the military, since they were computerizing the military at that point. Parks and Lasker thought it was a great idea and decided to run with it. There was a whole bunch of different iterations before they finally came up with the NORAD-based Whopper computer. One of my favorite was, instead of Whopper, there would be Uncle Ollie, or OLI, Omnipresent Laser Interceptor. And this would be a space-based laser system, like the Star Wars laser system that would be very popular in the early part of the Reagan administration, or in the Val Kilmer movie Real Genius. This proved to be too speculative at that point for the studios, and the writers, and they abandoned it instead using the nuclear first strike computer, which would be known as Whopper. And of course, Whopper stands for War Operation Plan Response. The director, John Badham, invented the name Whopper 
when he thought the NORAD SIOP, or Single Integrated Operating Plan, was boring and told you nothing. Whopper, he thought, plays off the hamburger Whopper and gives you a fuzzy image of something that goes, Whop! They did a great amount of character development for War Games while writing the script. The Matthew Broderick character, David Lightman, was modeled on David Scott Lewis, who was a hacking enthusiast Parks and Lasker had met while doing the research. David Lewis Scott is still working in technology nowadays. He's now 50 years old, and he's a clean tech executive living in China. There was an interesting interview published with him in Digital Beat last year in which he talks about his rise from the hacker days to working in web development and design to finally moving on to clean technology. It seems to me the natural progression of a rebellious kid to a successful and well-thought-out computer professional. It's especially neat to hear his talk about how he got started with ham radios and building his own telescope and then seeing the first kit appear for building your own PC in popular electronics. What a time to be alive. The character of General Berenger was based on James V. Hardinger, great little transposition there of letters, who was then the commander-in-chief of NORAD. General Berenger was, of course, played by the great character actor Barry Corbin. Parks and Lasker met Hardinger when they were on a tour of the North American Aerospace Defense Command Central Nerve Center, 2,000 feet under Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado. After the tour, they were walking back to the bus to bring them back to their hotel, when Hardinger came up behind them and planted a hand on the back of their necks and said, I understand you boys are writing a movie about me. And Hardinger will not let them leave and go back to the hotel until he's had a drink with them and talks to them about the role and his responsibility there. It seems that they took a lot out of Hardinger to make the role. Hardinger heartily preferred a human making decisions over a computer any day. He is quoted as saying, I sleep well at night knowing I'm in charge. Now that is a decisive military leader who I think Corbin channeled perfectly in his role. Hardinger passed away in 2000 after serving in the military from 1943 to 1984. At least he's immortalized in this movie forever. I guess it's true when they say that old military men never die. They just get played by character actors in 80s movies. The Dr. Stephen Falcon role, which went to John Wood eventually, was inspired by Stephen Hawking, and Parks and Lasker actually reached out to communicate with Hawking about the role. Originally, they had a particular actor in mind to play Professor Falcon. They wanted John Lennon, the Beatle and famous musician, to play the role, and they actually communicated with David Geffen, and John Lennon was very interested in the role. Unfortunately, John Lennon was killed, so that never went anywhere, and they found another great actor in John Wood to play the role. Still, you can kind of see a mixture of Hawking and Lennon in the role and in the way that Wood kind of carries himself. It really shows through in his performance. I don't know if that is on purpose or not. Now, I know having John Lennon in the movie would have made this movie a much more historical piece. I'm kind of glad he didn't because the movie would have been more about John Lennon than it is about computers and hacking and that early phase of the technology culture. The movie would eventually come to be directed by John Badham, but he was not the director originally attached to direct the film. He wasn't even the director on the film when it began. That honor went to Martin Brest. Brest probably most famously directed Beverly Hills Cop. He didn't last long directing the movie. After only 12 days, he got into a on-set tiff with the producers and was fired. So they went to the studio to find a, another person to direct the film, and a British-born director, John Badham, 
was chosen. And he's interesting because a couple of years earlier, he had directed another culturally defining movie, Saturday Night Fever. So Batum was brought aboard and started to look at the footage that had been shot and saw that Breast had taken a very dark look at hacking. When David and Jennifer were doing things that would be hacking activities, he portrayed it as very menacing and ominous. And much to John Batum's credit, he decided to reshoot a lot of it and bring a different tone to the movie. He wanted the audience to know that these kids weren't doing this to be evil or criminal. They were doing it because they thought it was a challenge and that they thought it was fun. So it took on a much more lighthearted feel when you saw them using the computer and booking their travel or changing their grade. The grade changing scene is actually a famous scene that got changed from the breast to batom version. In the original version, it was seen as something a little more sinister and sleazy, as opposed to a young boy trying to prove that he has some skills to the young woman that he finds attractive. To me, it is one of the defining scenes in the movie and one of the best reasons to have learned to use a computer in those early days. The hope that you could one day change the grade of a woman you found attractive was enough to get me reading computer books at the time. But I guess that is Geek Fantasy 101. Now a couple of other Martin Breast shots are still in the movie, although I have not been able to find a definitive description of what those scenes are. There's a funny story that when Batum came on, Sheedy and Broderick were very nervous because they had just fired the director and they kind of assumed that maybe since the vision of the film and the idea of the film was being changed, that they would be out. Batum didn't want that to happen. He thought they were great for the role. So he had to shoot the same scene a dozen times to get them to try to loosen up. And the funny story is that at one point he challenged them to a race around the soundstage with the one coming in last having to sing a song for the crew. Batum, being the smart director, of course, lost, which maybe he did on purpose, and chose to sing The Happy Wanderer, which he thought was the silliest song he could think of. I think it's a great way to endear yourself to your cast, and from that point on, the movie took on a completely different tone, and it became a Batum project. Five, four, three, two, one. Greetings, retro fans. This is Metagirl with the top five greatest computer-themed movies of all time. At number five is the underrated Phil Alden Robinson thriller, Sneakers. Number four is the implausible but strangely addicting Sandra Bullock film, The Net, which still has me looking for pie symbols on website. You'll say, whoa, when you hear number three. That's right, it's the Keanu Reeves blockbuster, The Matrix. Number two is the subject of this week's Retroist podcast, seminal hacker film, War Games. And the number one computer-themed movie of all time is the Jeff Bridges Disney classic, Tron. Jeff Bridges is my favorite actor working today, and I'm glad to hear that this film is finally getting a sequel befitting its stature with Tron Legacy. And there you have it, the Retroist top five greatest computer-themed movies of all time. Until next time, list fans, this has been Metagirl. There was never a revelation as to who the rest of the cast of the movie was based on, but you had Ali Sheedy playing Jennifer Mack as the love interest of Matthew Broderick's David Lightman, and Ali Sheedy was, to many young geeks, a first crush. In interviews, she has said that she has not seen the movie since it came out, which I kind of think is sad. Besides Ali Sheedy, you had Dabney Coleman playing Dr. John McKittrick. You can't go wrong with Dabney Coleman playing a pseudo-bad guy in any movie. And you had... Michael Matson playing Steve Phelps. You had two great character actors playing 
what I would say were the more stereotypical hackers of the time. Alan Blumenfeld playing Mr. Liggett and Maury Chaikin playing Jim Sting. So you know a little about the cast and the casting, but what about the plot of War Games? Now I'm hoping most of you have seen this movie. If you haven't, you might want to fast forward or pause and go watch it. But I still think even if you know the plot, it's a worthwhile movie to see. The movie begins with two Air Force officers who are in a nuclear attack simulation, and one of them refuses to turn their key to launch the missile, which convinces the powers that be that they should switch control of the nuclear launch to a centralized system, which is a computer named Whopper that will be placed in NORAD. Meanwhile, there's this kid, David Lightman, who's played by Matthew Broderick, who is a bright and unmotivated Seattle teen who, on his spare time, is a computer hacker. His love interest is Ali Sheedy, who plays Jennifer Mack, who he tries to impress by changing her grade, which I talked about earlier in a great and very touching scene. At the same time, he explains about dialing and how he can get into computers. There's a great sort of 101 on early hacking. I did air quotes there. And he talks about these games that he wants to play. So he starts dialing every number in Sunnyvale, California, hoping to find a computer that will allow him access to these games that he wants to play. He does finally get to a number that has a list of games. And those games are like Chemical Warfare and Global Thermonuclear War. Now, he's intrigued and wants to play these games, but it requires a password. This is what really gets interesting. Instead of the standard movie garbage now where he just runs a little program or, oh, I know right away, he clicks it. He actually has to think about what would be the password for this guy and getting into the head of the person who made the system to try to figure it out. Eventually, he figures it out and gets into this game. What he doesn't realize is that he is getting into Whopper and telling Whopper to play World War III. So the military finds out about it. They start chasing him. They capture him. He does some cool little hacks. He does some freaking. It's really interesting stuff. Toward the end, he meets Professor Falcon. Together, they go to NORAD, and they try to teach the computer that nobody would win in a game of nuclear war. So... To do that, they pick a game and have the computer play tic-tac-toe. And playing tic-tac-toe by yourself results in an endless number of draws. And in the final moments, right before the nuclear clock is about to run down, the computer realizes that no one could win and that a nuclear war would mean mutual assured destruction of both sides. And of course, the only winning move is to not play. Then he suggests that they play a nice game of chess and perhaps... Have a nice warm cup of tea. Maybe a snuggle. An interesting side note, Lasker was friends with the Reagan family. His parents were in the movie business, as was Reagan. So they arranged for a screening for Reagan to watch the movie. Reagan was so taken with it that at a closed-door briefing with some members of Congress, he got sidetracked while talking about the MX ballistic missile program by bringing up war games. He said to them, had anybody seen this movie? And then launched into an animated account of the plot before being interrupted by one of the lawmakers who was telling him, don't tell the ending, don't tell the ending. I just love that vision of the president discussing a movie. I can imagine all the lawmakers just need to go in fresh so they don't want any of the details. But how do you tell the president that you don't want the details of a movie that he really liked? Do you think that the Reagan administration was influenced by this movie at all? Maybe the investment in Star Wars was because they did not trust Whopper to run everything? Makes you think. The movie was released on June 6, 1983, and it was a huge hit. The movie was made for $12 million, and by the end of its run, it had brought in $80 million at the box office, which made it the fifth highest grossing movie of that year. you got to remember that this was a time of still 
hardcore brinksmanship by the United States and the Soviet Union. So during some of the initial screenings of the movie, when Whopper spoke the movie's final line, a strange game, the only winning move is not to play, how about a nice game of chess? The crowd would go nuts applauding. So drained were they by, I guess, this brinksmanship and how tired they were of hearing about it. That a computer, by saying that, could bring people to applause, I find very interesting and very satisfying. The movie was a hit amongst critics. Roger Ebert described it as an amazingly entertaining thriller and one of the best films of the year. Eventually, it would get three Oscar nominations, one for original screenplay, one for sound, and another one for cinematography. Sadly, it did not win any of those awards. The film was also screened at the 1983 Cannes Film Festival, although it was not in contention for any awards. From what I've read, it was pretty well received at that festival as well. You might not know it, but in 2006, War Games inspired a sequel called War Games The Dead Code. It was directed by Stuart Gilead and starred Matt Lanter. The movie was heavily influenced by hacker culture at the time, but the movie itself became an influence on hacker culture after it came out. Besides inspiring many people to give it an attempt, the movie led to the term war dialing, and the origin of that comes from the moment where Matthew Broderick is dialing every number in Sunnyvale to find some war games, and in BBS's after-the-fact programs for war games dialing were posted so that people could use them, and often the names of these programs would be shortened from war games dialing to wardial.exe, so it became war dialing. Recently, War driving has become a term that more people are familiar with. That's the act of driving around a neighborhood and looking for Wi-Fi hotspots that you can map or take advantage of. The War Games soundtrack is a great mix of pop and orchestra music. It was composed by Arthur B. Rubenstein. And an interesting bit of trivia, Stills of Crosby, Stills, and Nash composed a song for the movie that would act as the title for the movie called War Games. And it actually aired on a bunch of promos for the movie early on, but for some reason they decided to not use it in the movie, so it wasn't included on the soundtrack. But when the video for the song appeared on MTV, they used footage from War Games in it. So you would go to War Games the movie expecting this Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, and it wasn't there. But there it was on MTV all the time. You can find the song on the 1983 Crosby, Stills, and Nash album, Allies. In 1984, Coleco released a video game called War Games for the ColecoVision. This was later ported to 8-bit Atari computers and the Commodore 64. The goal of the game was to defend the United States against nuclear attack, sort of like a less frantic missile command. Now, before you rush out and buy it, you should know. The game was inspired by the movie War Games, but instead of depicting events in the film, it instead played on the NORAD footage of the big screen and made it into a playable game. The game itself, if you've played it, is stark and very technical by 1984 standards. I found it a joy to play. If you want to play a really cool nuclear war game nowadays, I would suggest you look up a game called DEFCON. DEFCON was released by Introversion Software and, and I believe can still be downloaded through Steam. If you are a big War Games fan but are turned off by the acting of the 80s, you might be in luck because Leonardo DiCaprio, who is a fan of War Games, has said in an interview in February of 2009 that he would like to reboot the War Games franchise and bring it back to theaters. If this inspires a generation of kids to pick up computers, and try to figure out things that they shouldn't, I'm all for it.
Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at twitter.com slash retroist and facebook.com slash retroist. If you have an idea for the show, why not email it to me at retroist at retroist.com. Thanks to Metagirl for another great top five list. If you have an idea for a top five list, email it to Metagirl at metagirl at retroist.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great weekend. I would love to play a game. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.